Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Hi, I'm Cameron Harold. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Today, I want to share highlights of several podcasts that I've been featured on. I hope you enjoy today's episode. So where did you first start this? Where did you like come up with the idea that this is a a good thing? So I actually got exposed to this idea back in 1998 in Vancouver. I was a part of the Entrepreneurs Organization, which was the first of uh, the first mastermind group I ever got involved in. And 120 entrepreneurs got invited to the lunch and only 16 of us showed up. And we were meeting with a high performance Olympic coach and sports psychologist. Mm-hmm. And he talked about looking into a crystal ball. And we thought this was the stupidest analogy we'd ever heard. We're like, God, this is going to be the biggest waste of our two hours. You know, it's going to be a day I'm never going to get back. And then he talked about how athletes, how high performance athletes would visualize themselves performing the event and how they would literally picture themselves performing the event. And we've all seen the, the athletes, like a high jumper is the one that I always remember in the Olympics. And you can see them out at the edge of the track with their eyes closed. And they're kind of like, you kind of see them going up over their mind. Like they're, they're literally mm-hmm. in their mind going up over the bar. And they do it mm-hmm. one or two times. And then they kind of open their eyes. They go back on their heels and they run. And, and they're literally now recreating the vision that they've done thousands of times in their mind. Yeah. So that when they're performing, they perform completely on instinct. So he explained how athletes did it. Then we talked about how contractors did it. And then we understood if we could take this idea and bring it into the business world, our employees could actually recreate our goals as well. Is that Michelle Partridge Lane on the call? What? Michelle is a, um, a former, or I don't know if you're a former or still a franchisee with 1-800-GOD-JUNK. Well, imagine that. I didn't want to spoil the surprise, but... We've got Brian here, Brian Scudamore with us. I was texting him this morning, telling him we're doing the uh, thing with you. And he's got a hard out at uh, at three o'clock. So well, Brian, Brian and great. I were at that very same lunch together. I wondered if that was exactly the thing. So let's- yep. uh, Brian and I were Brian, at the same lunch with a third, a third friend of ours. And Brian is the one that really put it in place better than anybody calling it a painted picture. He actually- and Brian, do you want to tell your story of how you took this idea and ran with it? Sure. Hey, Cameron. Surprise. I know no we, surprise. Were, we were chatting the other day. Cameron and I are still best of buds. And uh, so it's it's nice to uh, see you in your home. And hey, Dean, I see you got a horse for sale. I got a horse shell. for sale. Still. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah, maybe the quick painted picture story for me. So I was, I was in a doom loop, uh, as Jim Collins describes it. Uh, That meant some depression and just wondering what the heck was going on in my business and if I wanted to grow my business or if I even could. So 1997, 98, I'm at my parents' summer cottage. I was a part of EO. You had to have a million in revenue to get in. I got in even though I didn't finish high school, didn't finish college. This was going to be my education was EO. And I was in a doom loop because I thought it took me eight years to get to a million in revenue. I don't necessarily love the junk business, nothing sexy about it whatsoever. And I saw people in EO that had way bigger businesses. So I was comparing myself to others. I don't recommend you ever do that. It's not healthy. 
And so EO says, if you're trying to solve a creative problem, go somewhere that inspires you. I go to my parents' summer cottage, I sit on the water, I pull out literally one sheet of paper, double-sided, and I started talking to myself. I said, Brian, no more doom loop. Think of pure possibility. You're an optimistic, happy person. What could the future look like if only you could imagine it? So very Jerry Maguire-ish, but I started to feverishly write this one page and I never changed a word. And it started with, we will be in the top 30 metros in North America by the end of 2003, five years out. We would be on the FedEx adjunct removal, clean, shiny trucks, friendly, uniform drivers. We would be on the Oprah Winfrey show. I described in vivid color what the business would look like. And as I started to reread my painted picture, it was just a, what the, I looked at this and I'm like, I inspired myself. I could see pure possibility. I got jazzed and excited. I got goosebumps and uh, I said, okay, I can see this no more doom loop, but I didn't know how to make it happen. So fast forward a little bit. I started sharing it with people around me, people like Cameron. We sat on the back deck of my, uh, of my house at the time and had a couple of Boddington's some beer. And I remember, you know, Cameron and others said, you're on crack. You're smoking some hope dope here. You're not going to get on Oprah and have top 30 metros. And a lot of advisors said it can't be done. But the magic was Cameron and I in, in 1998, 99, we start working together. I bring him in. He's, he's, we were in the same EO forum. And I said, I can see the vision. He read it and felt it. Others could read it and wanted to be a part of it. And Cameron's role became reverse engineering. He became the implementer. He became the guy who said, okay, let's make this happen. And Cameron took us from 2 million to 106 million. We hit the top 30 metros. We got on Oprah. We, be, we had shiny new trucks and became the FedEx of junk removal. And it all happened as if it was magic. I'm happy to put a painted picture and a link to it in the chat just before I run. But Cameron used to say to me, I can't see visions. And I remember Cameron, I don't know if you remember this, but I, I, where I lost you here, but I'm like, that's bullshit. I go, if you could go on a vacation anywhere in the world tomorrow, where would you go? What are you drinking? Who are you with? What does it look like? What's the weather like? We can all imagine where we would go if we were actually allowed to travel today somewhere mm -hmm. in the world. And it's imagining that possibility. Cameron calls it the vivid vision, painted picture, vivid vision, whatever you see for your future, dream about it in full Technicolor and then take that sheet of writing and share it with everybody around you. Because I think I heard Cameron when I first came on, if people don't know what the entrepreneur's thinking, they're gonna go in every direction trying to please you. But true leadership is having a vision, what it looks like, sharing it with the world, and those people are, are who are going to get you to, uh, to greatness. So that's me kind of in a nutshell. Uh, and uh, thanks for having me, Dean. That is so I'm great. Happy to, I'm glad happy to that worked out. Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad that worked out. I love so, your hat. That was great. And it's funny that the only reason I even changed the name from Painted Picture to Vivid Vision was I had a number of coaching clients that thought the Painted Picture was a vision board with lots of pictures on it. Mm -hmm. So I tried to create something that, that took away from the idea of it needing to be pictures. Because it's okay to have a vision board for yourself. But a picture says a thousand words and different people can interpret pictures differently. Mm. So it's the same concept. But what Brian's painted picture did or the vivid vision was we then shared that with potential employees like Michelle. Who I got so excited about seeing the name. Michelle mm. was one of our early stage franchise partners and joined 
partially because she read the vivid vision of the painted picture and liked what it was coming. Nobody in their right mind, Brian and I were talking a couple of days ago, no one in the, in the first 10 or 15 franchisees, they must have been smoking dope because if they only saw what we had at that day, they never would have bought. But they bought yeah. in because of the future vision and it was so clear, they saw how they could be a part of that. It, it's interesting too how a vision, you can take one little thing that you see and describe it in such detail to others that that's all it needs to get someone excited. So a second business we went into, which we franchised called Wow One Day Painting. We have 1-800-GOT-JUNK, Wow One Day Painting, and Shack Shine, which is windows, gutters, and so on. Oh, wow, wow One Day Painting, we go paint people's homes in a day. And I remember when I looked at acquiring the business after they painted my home in a day and I was so wowed, I started looking around and asking people, what do you think? And I went to people with painting experience, a guy, James Alish, who used to be a senior guy at College Pro like Cameron was back in the day. And I remember saying to him, what do you think? And he's like, you're freaking nuts. You're, you're stupid, don't do it. I listened to him, all the reasons why he said it wouldn't work and I said, thanks. And I went and bought the business. Mm -hmm. Several years later, I shared a painted picture. I shared a vision with James. I shared our new branded logo. And James is like, oh my gosh, I'm in. Mm -hmm. And I said, in for what? He goes, you need somebody to run the business. I'm gonna be your manager, managing director. And I said, let's be clear, you thought I was freaking nuts. He goes, until I saw the vision and understood what it looked like, that made the difference. And James is with us today and phenomenal, phenomenal leader. Well, even I sat with Brian on his back deck before reading his first painted picture and said, you can't franchise junk removal. Yep. Like when we were sharing those Boddingtons, I remember where I was sitting on the back deck right by that old yep. screen door. Isn't that amazing. Oh, You're no, crazy. it's so when you, explain, okay. when, when you got to read the vision of what the future looked like, yeah. I'm like, no, now I can see it. I can help you make that come true. Like that, that can be done. I get that. So in our instance, we developed one and then three years later, we developed another one, but it was very similar to the initial mm -hmm. round. How do you see the vivid vision change for companies who do it every three years? Well, what tends to happen is when companies are really focused on executing that vivid vision and every quarter they're rereading the vivid vision, every quarter they're discussing what projects to make certain sentences of that vivid vision come true. Over time, the vivid vision starts to become true. You know, each sentence starts to become completed. So typically after three years, the company starts to look and feel different that you roll out the next three-year vivid vision, the next kind of iteration of what it's growing, much like a child, right? You've got kids that are 16 and 13. Six years ago, your 16-year-old was still that same person, but they were at 10 years old. They were a very different human than they are at 16. They're the same company that's evolving and growing and scaling. You know, if you were doing a three-year vivid vision with your 16-year-old, what you would be focusing on them becoming as a 19-year-old is very different than what you were focusing on them becoming as a 16-year-old. So it starts to kind of evolve and build. You know, the core values might stay consistent, but maybe the rhythms are different, or maybe the focus on leadership is different. Often the role of the leadership team becomes less top-down hierarchical, you know, telling people what to do. And it almost flips the org chart upside down where the leadership team is below the team, supporting them and growing them and, and, and aligning the team. So often that's where the shift starts to happen as, as the company scales. 
So if a listener is hearing this for the first time, how does one go about developing a vivid vision? Mm. Is it done by the CEO? Is it done by several partners? Or is it done by a leadership team? For a starting point, the vivid vision is a four or five page written description of what your company looks like, acts like, and feels like three years in the future. So what happens is it's really best for the CEO to craft the vision of what their company looks like and feels like, and then the role of the leadership team to figure out how to make it come true. So it's the CEO who needs to get out of the office, go somewhere where they're inspired and start crafting the rough elements, the, you know, thinking about every aspect of their company, describing the customer engagement three years from now, describing employee engagement three years from now, describing operations and marketing and IT and finance, describing every single business area as if it's already come true. And then you can get a copywriter to polish all that rough work and make it pop off the page. But that document is really best written by the CEO. And then the leadership team is best to figure out how to make that come true. You touched on earlier the cadence of when you read the vivid vision. So looking at it on a quarterly basis, how to make sure the momentum is happening and keeping it going. What do you recommend in terms of the tools to keep that execution going and the momentum building over time? Sure. Let's, let's pretend for a second that we were building a home together and we had a vision of what our home was going to look like. You know, we would look at the, at the dot diagrams and look at the drawings and look at the blueprints and then we'd start building the home for a week. And then we'd come back and look at the diagrams and the plan again. Then we'd keep building the home. That's kind of what you keep doing at the leadership team level is you keep reading the vivid vision. So you understand where you're going over the next three years. And then you get back and focusing on the next annual plan or the quarterly plan and making parts of it come true. It starts to kind of evolve over time. So one of the tools that I do is at every planning meeting, I have the leadership team and managers reread the vivid vision. Every quarter, I send the vivid vision to all of the customers and my suppliers, my accountant, my lawyer. Every quarter, you have all of your employees read the vivid vision. You send a copy of the vivid vision to every potential employee before they come for their first interview. So you're always talking about the future, but then you're executing on today. And it's by talking about it and rereading it and resharing it constantly every quarter that people start to feel it the same way that it usually is circulating inside the mind of the CEO. Yeah, that's amazing. So you actually used it with customers. Yeah, I send it to to customers and also to potential customers. When potential customers read what you can see, they get more inspired. You know, more more often, like if I used to speak about my COO Alliance as an example, I have an, an organization of COOs from around the world. If I talk about what we have today, it's cool. But if I talk about what it looks like in three years, it's inspiring and exciting. More people want to join what they get to help build versus what is already built. I've had clients of mine who I used to coach that landed million dollar customers because the customer was so excited about what this company was going to be over the next three years. They joined because of what they were going to get versus what they were getting today. I've even had bankers fund companies growth because they finally understood what the company was building. They never understood the financial projections or the, you know, the models that we were handing them. Wow. I can imagine that would be great for employee recruitment as well. It's huge for employee recruitment. It's huge for employee engagement. Um, It also is really, really powerful because on a daily basis, employees understand where they fit and what parts, what sentences of the vivid vision they're help making come true. That's powerful. Do you include it in part of the review process in terms of evaluating people and seeing how they're doing? 
not necessarily on, on the scoring of an individual employee contributor, because their job is to do the tactical work to maybe make sentences come true, but it's absolutely part of them deciding what projects to work on. It's part of them getting excited about working in the day-to-day -day work. So I've used an example for years. If you've ever been to Barcelona and you've seen the famous cathedral, the Sagrada Familia building, you know, it's being built for the last 140 years, this incredible cathedral being built. And, and you know, 50 years ago, they asked these three men sitting out on the sidewalk and they were making bricks. And they said to the first guy, what are you doing? He said, I'm making bricks. And they said to the second guy, what are you doing? He said, I'm building a wall and I get to make the bricks to build a wall. And they said to the third guy, what are you doing? He said, we're building the Sagrada Familia and I get to make the bricks to build the left wall of the cathedral. So all three of them were making bricks, but the person who saw the vision and understood what they were building had more meaning in their day to day. So it's less about a management tool and it's more about an inspiration tool. When everyone's inspired, you don't have to manage them at all. They're excited to just get their work done. Yeah. How have you seen the process of vivid vision creation change during the last 18 months? I feel like a lot of companies were in survival mode and now everybody's starting to talk about vision again. How have you experienced that in the last 18 months? I've seen it change in two ways. One, um, I actually have a partner on the whole Vivid Vision process, Jennifer Hude, with her brand Conscious Copy. She and her team have helped about 450 companies take their rough work of the Vivid Vision, and they have a number of meetings with them to pull out more of the ideas and help them craft it and write them. So the fact that they've written about 450 company Vivid Visions from all over the world has been just a powerful amplifier of the tool. But in terms of COVID and the way that it's being used, I think companies now are realizing more than ever when you have a hybrid company with some employees coming to an office, some employees being remote, maybe employees being from different cities or states or countries, it's really important for people to understand exactly what that company looks like, right? How are we operating? What are we building? What's the rhythms in the business like? And the Vivid Vision concept is a really strong aligning tool, much more than a mission statement, you know, that one sentence statement ever used to be. Sure. So it's really transformational, especially during this time. I can see that because everybody's not going to the same place. It's also been really powerful in, term, in the last 18 months, again, in recruiting new employees, because when you're recruiting employees, you have to stand out and be different than all the other companies they could work with. And when a potential employee gets to read a vivid vision of what your company looks like and feels like in the future, they get very excited about what they get to help build. Right. So that's become powerful versus if they're applying to work for XYZ company and that other company doesn't really have anything similar, you really do stand out in a completely different way. Yeah. Do you have any data points or metrics about companies' success that have done a vivid vision versus somebody that hasn't? I have a lot of anecdotal ones and a lot of emails that get written constantly where people come back and they say, wow, like I was completely excited to write a vivid vision and hoping we could double the size of a company, but we tripled or, you know, it blew us away or it aligned our or We just won a lot of clients that I worked with years ago to write vivid visions ended up ranking number one to work for in their country. I coached two companies that went on to rank number one to work for in Australia, one to get up, she ended up being on Shark Tank in Australia one that went on to rank number two in all of North America by Forbes magazine, two that went on to rank number one to work for in British Columbia. Like, so a lot of companies became very iconic cultural brands in their states or countries, um, but I haven't actually measured it, but I, I'm getting, again, dozens and dozens of emails. Even if you go on Amazon and just read the actual comments from people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reviews about the Vivid Vision book, you can actually see the comments from people. What would you say are the biggest obstacles in getting a vivid vision down on paper? Well, the first one is that 
entrepreneurs tend to try to figure out how am I going to make it happen? And instead of worrying about how am I going to do it, they should start thinking about who can help me make it happen. You know, if we were building a home, right, if I was going to build my dream home, I, I don't think about how am I going to do the electrical and how am I going to do the plumbing and how am I going to install the cabinets because I know I can't do it. I just say, well, someone will figure that out. And in the, the block in the company tends to be the entrepreneur thinks they need to know how to do it. As soon as they release themselves from having to worry about how it'll come true, then they're very empowered because it allows them to dream bigger and attract better people who can help them figure out how to make that come true. Right, it becomes a who problem, not a how problem. So Cameron, today we're going to talk about the second, the importance of the second in command and how it all relates to systems because I know that you have that one down and I'm so excited about our conversation. Thank you. Yeah, it's interesting. I've played the second in command role a couple of times actually in my career, three times. Um, once I was the second in command for the franchising group for an auto body chain that went on to become the largest auto body chain in the world. It's now called Gerber Auto Collision in the United States and Boyd Auto Body in Canada. Um, I was also the second in command for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, as we mentioned, and then I really kind of played that similar role with a private currency company as well. Um, so I've been around that kind of role a long time where you have the founder, the CEO, who shares that kind of entrepreneurial vision, who's the culture person, who is driving forward, usually with strategic thinking. And then you need that person who is on the inside of the organization making it all happen. And Harvard actually wrote an article about 15 years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. And it's a role that people just didn't understand because as they described, there were seven types of chief operating officers inside of one company. You know, you could have someone who's focused on execution, someone who's focused on maybe the heir apparent, somebody who has more of an MVP role, someone who's a change agent. So there's all these different things that a COO can be doing. What really makes a great COO is someone who has the same core values as the CEO, but a very different yet complementary skill set. So you almost become that yin and yang partnership between the CEO and the COO, where the COO is great at stuff the CEO sucks at, and the CEO is great at stuff the COO just doesn't want to be doing as well. And then as long as the trust is really strong between them, they can really operate as that real strong partnership. That's great. So let's say we have somebody listening to us right now, and they're wondering, should I find the COO from within, or is it smarter to bring a COO from the outside and train them? Okay, and I know that our listeners are, are, you know, we've got a bunch. We've got some that are smaller organizations and some that are large organizations. So I'm going to kind of cover this question from all aspects. So the first part, if you're a smaller company and you're looking to hire your first second in command, the first thing I'm going to ask you is, do you have an executive assistant? Because if you don't have an executive assistant, you are one. And you need to try to get some of that administrative work off your plate to free up your time to work on the bigger areas of the business. So often the CEOs don't need a COO right away. They need a really strong executive assistant to free up their time. Now, if you already have one, and if you truly do need that second in command, don't call them a COO right away. Maybe it's a director of operations. Maybe it's a general manager. Maybe it's a VP of operations. Maybe it's a COO. 
the bigger the title should mean the more responsibilities, the higher the roles are and what you're going to be paying them. So be careful giving away a title that's too big too early. We've often gotten really kind of very lax with giving titles away. You know, you'll have a CFO of a 30 person company. It's not a CFO. It's more like a controller or a director of finance. But the person thinks they're a CFO. So they start hiring all these people and trying to build out all these teams and they build more complexity in the organization and they don't even have a title to chase down. So if you're getting the title correct, then you really need to sit down and say, what are the things in the business that you're working on day to day that drain you of energy? What are the things that you're working on the organization that you're really not good at? And can you find a second in command, regardless of title, who can do those things based on that bucket of things? What would the title be and what should the compensation be to make sure that you have the right person? That tends to be the starting point for me. Right. So what's the difference then between what a COO is going to do and, as you mentioned, an executive assistant in terms of like, because it's a similar process in terms of looking what's on your plate and let's get off the plate of the CEO, the things that are really not um, an income producing activities, right? That's for the executive assistant. Well, the, and the, the, C, the COO may take off in things that aren't income producing as well, but they, you know, they might oversee finance. Maybe the COO oversees legal. Maybe the COO oversees engineering and IT and sales and marketing to free up the CEO to focus on the board and culture and strategy, um, networking, rainmaking. Some cases, the CEO is very outward facing, like a Brian Scudamore at 1-800-GOT-JUNK is very outward facing. In some cases, the CEO is very inward facing, like a Tobias Luke at Shopify, who's all focused on engineering. And his COO, Harley Finkelstein, is more of the outward facing sales, marketing, biz dev. So you don't have a traditional role and responsibility other than their, that true partnership. You know, my brother and his wife are funny. They, they've divided up the house um, over the last 20 years, and they call it pink jobs and blue jobs, but they're not the pink jobs and, and blue jobs of my grandparents' generation. You know, when my grandparents were growing up, my grandmother did the laundry, my grandmother did the shopping, you know, my grandfather did the work around the house. My brother and his wife have said, well, my brother's like, I like cooking. She's like, great, I hate cooking. My brother's like, I hate cleaning up. She's like, I like cleaning up. My brother's like, I don't like doing laundry, but I like folding it. So, so they've just divided it up. And what they mean by pink jobs and blue jobs are those are his responsibilities. Those are her responsibilities, but it doesn't have to be the same for every organization. Whereas a director of, or, you know, a chief marketing officer handles all things marketing. COOs handle very different things in every organization. It's based on what drains the CEO and what areas will really leverage the COO. I love it. So it's really looking at the strengths of the both individuals and figure out what works. So there will be that yin and yang, like you described. So then they can, then you create a whole. It's a, it's a wholeness in the organization. Yeah. And that's why I talk about that yin and yang partnership between the two, that they're really the sum of the parts, right? That when you add up the two of them, they become that really strong force. And if the trust is very strong between the two, the COO can start taking on all of the hard decisions and the hard systems to put in place and make the CEO look good, right? My role as COO at 1-800-GOT-JUNK was to make Brian the shining star. And his role behind the scenes was to make sure that everyone still liked me after me being the hard ass all the time, right? right. Oh, Cameron just has to do that. Cameron has to push hard. And meanwhile, I was taking all the, the tough decisions and trying to roll them out to make Brian iconic so that we would always believe in this beautiful shining light. 
And as long as as long as I trusted that he had my back and he trusted I had him his back, then we were that force. Left. I finish every meeting five minutes early so I can always be on time for my next meetings. What questions have you got for me? Probably about 50 million. So it's hard to kind of pick <laughs> one right now. How do I figure out how to, to convey or take the stuff that I'm doing right now, which I have a hard time figuring out how to pass off some of my tasks to another person because do I just need to spend more time in, in the training or do we have to sit there and do it together and follow it's just yeah so, I'm so, so, so I, i'll answer the first part of the question then i'm going to give you a quick exercise that'll be very helpful and we'll be able to wrap with that so you can have someone listen in on all of your phone calls and they can learn just from listening and then you can talk to them afterwards you can forward your emails to them and have them read them or you can blind cc them so that they can read them and they can learn just the way you're writing and what you're saying to people you can have them sit in on meetings they can ride shotgun with you. They can can listen in on phone calls that you do with your team or your staff, right? So they get to learn just from watching. I learned a lot about running companies just from sitting with my dad, watching him run his businesses, right? Just being around him. So just get your employees and your EA. Yeah, just get them to be around you and they'll learn just from osmosis. They'll learn just from watching. And then what you do on the drive to the next place is say, what did you see me do? What did you see me say? Well, this is how I did that. And they go, oh, okay. And mm-hmm. You're driving anyway. So when you're driving to that other place, you just talk to them. But the key thing to remember sense. is that, yes, it's going to cost you to train them, but the upside is that they can then do that for you at scale, right? Your right. job needs to get done, but not by you. You need to break the habit of, I need to do this. No, no, no. It needs to get done but not necessarily by you. And then your job is to figure out, can I automate it? Can I outsource it? Can I delegate it to someone? But it it all needs to get done, but not by you. So I even have this podcast, my second command podcast. As soon as I get off my episode, my Zoom files get automatically uploaded. And then my podcast team who are in Tel Aviv in Israel, they get notified that the files come in They download the files off Dropbox. They do all the editing of it all. Then my post-production team puts it all out in marketing. I do nothing other than I do the interview and I'm done. I delegate everything except genius. So you would say like, I run through everything that I have to do. And what about putting through a filter where either I automate, delegate, or eliminate? Here's the filter. I want you to pretend that someone followed you around with a video camera for an entire month. And just like Gary Vaynerchuk, and they're going to video everything that JP does for an entire month. And then I want you to write down everything that you see yourself doing. What I do is I open up an Excel spreadsheet or a Google sheet, and I put down every task, one row per task. I open emails, I read emails, I reply to emails, I show up at meetings, I talk to some trades, whatever. You write down all the 86 things you do over the course of a month. And then you're going to categorize those things in one of four ways. Either the letter I for incompetent, meaning that you suck at it, a C for competent, meaning I'm okay at it, an E for excellent, meaning I'm really, really good at it, 
and a U for unique ability, meaning I'm really good at it and I love doing it. As an example, I'm pretty incompetent at grilling a steak. I should just have someone barbecue for me. And for you, that's like, that's impossible. How can you be bad at it? I'm like, dude, I'm way better at hiring somebody to grill my food for me than I am at grilling my own food. I'm very good at, so if you can delegate all the incompetent and all the competent, that's the first thing. And then the second way is put down a dollar figure. What would the hourly rate be that you'd pay someone to do each of those tasks? Mm -hmm. What would you pay them to grill a steak? What would you pay them to clean a toilet? What would you pay them to wash a car? What would you pay them to call a contractor? What would you pay them to negotiate with a bank? Mm, I'd probably pay more to negotiate with a bank than I would be to hire a plumber, right? So what you're going to now start doing is delegating everything that's below your effective hourly rate. And then the last thing is, can you stop doing it before you delegate it, before you outsource it? Does it even need to be done? There's a bunch of things you might be doing that just don't even need to be done anymore. So before you delegate something, let's decide, does it even need to be done? You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.